Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to the services of Calvary Bible Church. My name is Dustin Drake, and I'm one of the elders at Calvary. And I'm actually filling in for Byron this morning as he's away with the wife and kids getting a little bit of R&R. Now, I know some of you regulars are thinking this morning, what is that on your face? Well, this is actually my Corona beard. Uh, how did that come to pass? Well, all of us, my wife, the kids, the grandkids, were supposed to be in Florida relaxing on the beach the third week of March. And since that didn't happen, I decided to go ahead and take a week of vacation and do projects around the house. And so during that week, I was just quite lazy as far as shaving was concerned. And this just kind of grew on me. And after that, I know that's a bad, that's bad. But I decided just to keep it and see if I looked a little more distinguished. So this morning, I hope you're enjoying your Sunday morning. I hope you're snuggled up with a warm cup of coffee. And I'd just like to direct you to the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. James chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. The Word of God said, Blessed is the man who preserves under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray this morning. Father, I want to thank you for this day when we can come together, even if it's over video, Father, and read your word and study your word. I pray, Lord, that you would just minister to those that are listening this morning. I know some are discouraged being out of work. Some may be perhaps fearful of the things that have gone on and are going on in our society. And I just pray by being in your presence, Lord, and worshiping together, that we would be encouraged and lifted up. That we'd be challenged, Father, through your word where we need to be challenged. And I pray this morning they would not see me or hear my words, but they would hear your word, Father. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'm going to be speaking on overcoming strongholds. I chose this issue because in my 40-plus years of ministry, I have found a great deal of confusion in and among the body of Christ concerning the subject of sanctification. In fact, if you want to study the subject of sanctification, you can simply Google the five views of sanctification. And you'll find there are five major views. There's the Wesleyan view, the Reformed, the Pentecostal, the Keswick, and the Augustinian dispensational view of sanctification. And these make really interesting reading, but while they make interesting reading, I find a lot of times in the body of Christ we're debating terms and meanings of words. What I do know from studying the Word of God, that God's desire is that we all be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, God wants us to, becoming, to be becoming more and more like His Son. Paul's mission in life really 
was to present everyone perfect in Christ. Colossians 1.28 says, For we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was the heart of Paul, to see people come from being lost to being like Jesus. The mission of the church, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that we are to be building up the church until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness, the fullness of Christ. The mission of the church is to build up the body of Christ so that we become like Christ. But we know this is a transformation, and it's a journey and a process. You know, we have positional sanctification when we come to Christ. That means when we come to Christ, God sees us as totally righteous before him. But then there's also progressive sanctification, and that's a process. That's the process by which God conforms us to the image of his Son. Now, if we're honest with each other and with ourselves, no matter what view of sanctification you hold, we know that we all still struggle with sin. Some people like to say they don't, but the truth is we still all have sin in our lives. You know, the goal of the Christian life is not to quit sinning. I know in churches I've been in in the past, it seemed like that was our goal, was to quit sinning and manage sin in our lives. But the goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ in both our attitudes and our actions. Well, does that mean we don't care about sin? No, we still have to deal with sin in our lives. I found even that to be very confusing sometimes among Christians. How do we deal with sin in our lives? I find the hyper-grace crowd which say, well, my sin is all forgiven, so I don't even have to worry about it. And they almost take the, the position, let us sin that grace may abound. And then I find my beloved brethren who tell us, you need to repent. And when you repent of your sin, you need to mean it. And you can't just go do it again. I've ha- heard these conversations. Of course, me being a little bit facetious, I like to ask them. So tell me, have you ever committed a sin and then you confessed it to God? Well, of course I have. Did you ever do it again? And then they look at me and say, yes. I said, well, what a, did you not mean it? Maybe you should take the cat of nine tails and beat yourself next time. So I find there's these two extremes. But 1 John 1, 9 says that we are to confess our sin. The word confess in the Greek is the word homo lego. Homo meaning the same and lego meaning to speak. Confession means to speak the same or to agree with God that what we just did was sin. And that's how we deal with sin. We don't just act like it didn't happen and we don't beat ourselves up over it. We confess it to God and we ask God, give me victory over that next time. Help me as I walk with you. However, with this, there are times when a believer becomes ensnared in the sin. And that sin becomes habitual and seems to be impossible to break. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we're commanded when we see a brother or sister overtaken by sin, that we're to go and restore them. The Bible says restore them in a meekness, of, a spirit of meekness and gentleness, considering ourselves. Not a spirit of condemnation. You know, sin can become so bad that even it leads to death in the life of a believer. First John 5.16 tells us that there is a sin that leads to death. 
I don't know what that sin is that doesn't spell it out. But you can commit sin to such a point that God takes you home to be with him. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where they were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. And Paul wrote and said, some of you are sick and some of you are asleep. That's a heavy verse. And you know, the real crux of that was not some sin outside of the church like adultery or murder or lying or theft. It was how they were treating each other during the Lord's Supper. So today I'm going to examine temptation for the book of James. And then we're going to drill down to the root cause of habitual sins. And I hope that you can see the light that there is, there is hope. There is hope in the Word of God to have victory and to live according to God's truth, even over habitual sins. So as we look in the Word this morning, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this verse is talking about trials. And it seems kind of out of place with the rest of this passage, but I don't think it is. Now, some scholars do believe that this should be better translated, tempted. And he's talking about temptation in this whole passage. But being the fact that he just came out of talking about trials, I think he's talking about trials here also. And he's tying it together. And I'll tell you why. Why I think that is so. Because when we go through a great period of trial in our life, sometimes it opens us to temptation. An example of that is even what we're going through right now with the coronavirus. For some people who are believers, and for many people who don't know Christ, this is a very troubling time. A time of great anxiety and worry. Worry about their loved ones. Perhaps they have parents Perhaps they have loved ones that are sick, that have, you know, underlying medical conditions. And they're experiencing a lot of anxiety. And that anxiety and fear can lead to temptation in our lives, to do things we normally wouldn't. So when he ties these two together, there is a truth that sometimes when we're believers and we're going through a time of trial in our lives, that uh, we need to be careful about temptation sneaking its way in. I've often said there's... Basically, five things you need to grow in the Christian life. Five things. You need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. We do not, we either walk in the flesh or we walk in the Holy Spirit. And if you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not pleasing God. Romans chapter 8 says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Number two, you need to be in God's Word, feeding in God's Word. The sword of the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. And the Word of God connects us to our Father and tells us the truth we need to know about Him, about ourselves, and about life in general. Third, you need to be in in communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You need to be talking with God often, communing with Him. And not only talking, but listening to God. Listening to Him as He speaks to you through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And then fourth, you need to be in fellowship with other believers. We are called to be in the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. And we're placed in the body to build each other up. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4, he says he gave evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the body to do the work of the ministry, which is building us up, each other up, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. 
And then the last thing we need to grow, go, grow is trials. We need to go through various trials. Now, you can control four of those things. God, he supplies the trials. But as we go through trials in our lives, the reality of our Christian faith is strengthened. But we have to be careful because sometimes trials, the enemy can get in and lead us to a place of temptation. So what I want to look at this morning is just, first of all, the process of temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This is very important that we look at that, because that's going to come to play as we work our way through this passage. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown or accomplished, it brings forth death. There's a process of temptation. First of all, it's desire. It says everyone is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I like the word desire there better, but lust will fit. This word is actually the Greek word epithemia. Epi meaning upon and themos, or thumos meaning an outburst of passion. This is speaking about a desire that comes from within us, a craving, a longing. It is an impulse desire to fulfill some deep need that we have. The famous Greek scholar W.E. Vines describes it as the emotions of the soul. These desires that we have are the origin of temptation for all of mankind. And they're often based on legitimate needs. We have legitimate needs for food when we're hungry, for rest when we're tired, for comfort when we're sad. For love, affection, affirmation, significance. However, when you're eating when you're hungry, that's fine. But when you're eating to stuff emotions, that's not good. In fact, gluttony is called a sin. Rest when you're tired is normal. But laziness leads to destruction in your life. The need for significance and meaning is God given to us. But when we use others for our own gain, that is sin. The question is, where do these twisted desires come from? Well, the answer is our sinful fallen nature. But I want to go a little deeper than that today. So first of all, we're looking at the desire. There's a desire that wells up in us. And notice it says this, we are being carried away and enticed by our own desires. This is temptation's draw or deception, being carried away. It's interesting that both of these words, carried away and enticed or drawn away, are both participles. In fact, they're passive participles in the Greek, and I'm not going to get into a lot of that. But this first line says that we're being actually drawn or carried or dragged away. And it has the ideal of looking at bait. And it comes from a fishing term that means a hook that's been baited. And it's our own desires that are carrying us toward this. Our desires are drawing us out to sin. You know, it's interesting. It's a participle, so it's an ongoing thing, but it's a passive voice. It's almost as if our desire itself is dragging us toward it. It's almost like we're the unwilling person. It's our own desire deep down, this need that's pulling us toward the sin. And then the word, it's, we're also being enticed. Being enticed is a better translation. 
Because it's an ongoing process. It's also a past, present, passive participle. Or present, passive participle, excuse me. So it's an ongoing action. It means to be enticed or beguiled. Beguiled by flattering lies and deception. Our own desires that are deep down in our heart, they draw us towards sin. They create this pulling effect in our lives. The battle takes place here in the minds, and we wrestle and try to justify fulfilling our twisted desires. The desires come from the emotions, and then the drawing out is the battle place that takes place in the mind. So we looked at temptation's desire, we looked at its draw and deception, then we look at temptation's disobedience. It says this, then having conceived or come to completion, it brings forth death. There's three things I want you to see about temptation's disobedience. A decision, disobedience, and then development. First of all, there's a decision. The word here is syllabusa. It means having conceived. And it's interesting also because it's a participle. Yeah, I was reading one author, the side note, that talked about Greek tends to be the language of participles. And it, what it's really saying is when desire or lust conceives or comes to completion. And this actually takes place before we actually sin. And this is the decision point in our lives. Before this point, the battle is going on in the emotions and the intellect, but now the will has yielded the decision, and it's been made. And if you've ever struggled with a temptation, you know this is true. This desire wells up in you, and then it begins dragging you and enticing you and beguiling you with lies to do that thing. And this battle rages in your mind and with your emotions, but then the moment of decision takes place. And once the decision takes place, it always leads to disobedience. Once it's conceived or come to completion, completion, it brings forth sin. The word harmartia means missing the mark, failure of sin. It gives birth to sin. The result is given into our own desires. And this leads to disobedience to God. It's a process, but it's a strong process. It says we're tempted when we're carried away and enticed. We're being carried away and being enticed by our own desires or lust. Then when this desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, this word accomplished, if you look in the King James Version, it's, it's translated fully grown. And it has the ideal of coming to development. You know... Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, talks about the sin that so easily beguiles us or entangles us. It's one thing to commit a sin. It's another thing to keep committing the same sin. And it begins to grow in your life. It begins to develop and become strong. And I think this is where strongholds come to pass. This is not just a single slip-up or act of disobedience. This has become habitual. It's habitual sin that leads to death and destruction in our lives. Someone just find a stronghold is this. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that comes to one 
It causes one to believe that something is unchangeable when it is known to be contrary to the will of God. Let me read that one more time. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes one to believe that something is unchangeable when it is known to be contrary to the will of God. There are Christians who have allowed sin into their life and it's become habitual. And in their life, they feel like they cannot overcome it. It's impossible. They try, they fight against it. But they feel compelled to do it. It wells up in them. And then, of course, when sin has come to fruition, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. Now, I do not believe a Christian can die again spiritually. But you can be taken out physically. Going back to that passage in 1 John chapter 5, he says, there's a sin unto death. And I don't, he says, I don't even think, ask that you pray for that person. There's a time when you as a believer can cross a line and God takes you home early. But even other than that, sin brings destruction or death into our lives in so many ways. The death of relationships. Adultery can destroy your marriage. Being financially irresponsibility can destroy your life financially. There's certain things. Getting addicted to drugs can destroy your health, your marriage, your family, everything you have. There are some sins in life that are so destructive that once they get a hold of us, they wreak havoc in our lives. They become strongholds. Now, in Christianity, a lot of times, we tend to focus on the disobedience. We tend to focus on the actual act. And we do things to try to get people to quit committing a certain sin. I know of a guy I was dealing with on meeting with him in the mornings. Very... Very uh, committed Christian. And uh, he was going to work every day and looking at pornography. Spending hours looking at pornography on, the, on a computer at work. Knowing that he was risking losing his job. Of his family finding out. I asked him, I said, did you get any counseling on this? He said, yes. I went, went to the pastors and I said, what did they tell you to do? He said, well, they told us I just needed to read the Bible more and pray more. I said, has that worked? He said, no, not really. See, there's something deeper there. There's something deeper. And I'm not against reading the Bible and praying. But you've got to know what you're praying and what you're reading about. So a lot of times we focus on the, the disobedience. But I want to take you back to the beginning, to the word desire. The desire is the problem. Where do these desires come from? Well, they come from our fallen nature. But they're more than that. Yes, they are because of our fallen nature. I believe they originate from lies that we believe in our lives. Deep-seated lies. Lies that we believe about God. Lies that we believe about others. And lies that we believe about ourselves. You say, where do these lies come from? Well, they're ingrained in our minds from different experiences in life. They can come from our childhood, especially if we were abused or neglected in our life. They can come from well-meaning parents who did the best they could but were very dysfunctional. And we all have some of that. These lies can come from the world system. (laughs) The world system, if you don't know this, it lies to you all the time. 
Our world's advertising system is to make you dissatisfied with everything you've got. Have you ever thought about that? Everything you've got is not good enough. Nothing you have is good enough. It's constantly bombarding you with a, with a lie that if you have this, it's better. You'll be better. It, it, it displays on your emotions. It entices you. These lies can come from well-meaning pastors and teachers and other leaders. They can come from false teachers. They can come from our own hearts and minds when we interpret what happens around us in the wrong way. But I want to tell you, ultimately, these lies come from Satan. The Bible tells us that he is the father of lies. John 8.44 He was a murderer from the beginning, refusing to uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. When we believe lies, they produce strongholds in our lives. I want to read a verse to you. This is, this is a verse years ago when I was preaching through the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, he lists out these woes to Israel. And woes are impending judgments because of things they're doing. And in verse 18, he says this, Woe to those who drag sin with cords or ropes of falsehood, and sin as if it were, as if with a cart rope. As I begin to think about that verse, what I imagined in my mind were people were drawing behind them huge carts loaded with sins. And what connected them? What does he say is connecting them? What are the ropes holding them to those sins? It's the lies they believe about those sins. That's what produces this huge burden behind them. That's what connects them to it and keeps them connected to it. It's the lies we believe. And we can believe lies about God, His character, and how He works in this world. One of Satan's favorite attacks is to get us to doubt the goodness of God and to question God. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he says, you will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. What was he telling them? God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat from that because then you'll be like him. You'll be God like him and you can do what you want to do. God is, Satan is always trying to get us to doubt God's goodness. That's one of his favorite attacks. To get us to doubt God's goodness, God's power in our lives. That's one of the things the world struggles with a lot today. Is about God's character. They try to impugn God's character. So how does this happen? How does this take place in our life? How are these lies formed? Well, I'm going to recommend a book to you. And I'll tell you why in just a second. This book is called The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. In this book, he says 40% of girls in the United States will be sexually molested or abused by the time they're 18. And what he says in the book is when a child is abused in any way, that they begin to think in their mind about why is this happening to me. And I really believe that most children... Believe there is, a, in a concept of God, that there is a God. So they ask themselves the question, why is this happening to me? 
They ask themselves the question, why does God let this happen to me? And oftentimes they come to the conclusion, either God doesn't care about me, or God cannot do anything about it. Therefore, God is not willing to be trusted. He's not worthy to be trusted. And so this, they grow up in their lives not trusting God because of this. And it leads to other sins in their lives. One of the things he talks about in this book is it's really hard to get someone who's been abused to deal with the lies that they believe. Because when you try to confront them on the lies they believe and the things they're doing that are wrong, that have become sinful in their life, what do they say? I'm the one that was abused. Why do I need to change? What, what, is I, what am I doing that's wrong? It's very hard to deal with that, to see that. That's one of the things they have to do. Traumatic experience in life, experiences in life lead not only us to believe lies about God, but also lies about other people and even lies about ourselves. These things are ingrained sometimes in our, in our character. And they lead us to relational sins. Sometimes we feel, because of this, we feel compelled to protect ourselves, defend ourselves, to control the situation. Or we seek something to medicate ourselves with. Our favorite sin. And that, of course, only leads to regret, to self-loathing, to conviction, and often destructive consequences in our lives. You know, when you talk about strongholds, in a Christian life, sometimes we have some that we know and are outwardly very, very ugly. We know when drug addiction, alcoholism, those types of things, lying, stealing, cheating, you know. But there's some that are harder to identify. And I want to share with you one of mine that I've dealt with in my life, and I still struggle with it, is perfectionism. First of all, when I usually share that with people, they're going, What? How can perfectionism be a sin? And why do you struggle with that? Well, I'll tell you why. I grew up with two parents that were both perfectionists. They grew up in a time when they were dirt poor. Both of them were dirt poor. Both of them had bad fathers. My mother's father was mentally ill and very abusive. My dad's father was a bootlegger and a philanderer and wasn't there ever, except for the one time he hit him in the head with a two-by-four and knocked him out. And they grew up dirt poor, dirt, dirt poor. And so, in my dad's mind, he had an eighth grade education, I will provide for my family physical needs. And he rose to a place of being a district manager at Frito-Lay. Very, very successful. The man worked 70-hour weeks, 80-hour weeks. The man was driven. When we planted a garden, it wasn't a normal garden. It was about as big as this sanctuary. I hated that garden. It was huge. Everything he did was like that. My mom, she became a perfectionist. And I'm going to share this about my mother. My mother was a wonderful mother. There was never a time you opened the drawer that your clothes were not all folded perfectly. There was never a time you got home at night that there wasn't a very good home-cooked meal. There was never a time when the house wasn't clean. I can still picture this of my mother on a linoleum floor when we lived in Chattanooga. In the corner... Downstairs in the den with a toothbrush, scrubbing the dirt out of the corner before she waxed the floor. And when she waxed that floor, you could see yourself in it. So I grew up under that. Good was not good enough. And then I played sports. I played football in high school. And in sports, you never got praised that much for the good stuff you did. It was always the play you messed up on. 
I can remember being chewed out in front of a whole stadium full of people because I missed one play. Coach called me over right in front of the whole sideline, began cussing me out and chewing me out. So this was ingrained in my soul, perfectionism. Now, I'll tell you something. You think, well, when you became a Christian, that just all went away. Oh, no, no, it didn't. It just transferred over to Christianity. And I sought to be and tried to be perfect. And I wanted everyone else to be perfect around me. My wife, if she wasn't such a good, loving woman, she probably would have killed me or divorced me. Because I was her police. I was her Holy Spirit. When we would go around family members that were lost, after we left, I would critique everything she did and said. This is, this is truthful. You said this, you shouldn't have said that, because that wasn't Christian. You watched that program on TV with my, with my parents, you shouldn't have done that. That, was a, that wasn't a good program. Just constantly struggling with that. Come home, if the house wasn't perfect, it would bother me. If there was a piece of paper on the floor, it would bother me. I would sit and stew over it sometimes. Why, why would no one pick that up? What's wrong with them? Are they all just lazy? Can nobody pick up that piece? That's the way I would think. And I brought that into my Christianity. I'll share a story with my, about my daughter, Laurel. You know, my kids all played sports. And Laurel, she worked really, really, really hard at softball. She wanted so badly to be like her older brothers, who were both star athletes. And one year she worked and worked and worked. She was 12 years old. And they played the championship game down here at Bell Mountain Park. And that night she was 4 or 5 hitting, played second base, didn't make an error, and ended up getting the game ball. Now, I can remember this like this was yesterday. We're driving back Redstone Road, about getting almost to the Walmart, and I said, you know, Laura, that time you struck out, I want to tell you what you did wrong. She had this habit of dipping her legs. And I started to tell her, and she looked at me and said, Dad, is nothing ever good enough with you? That's what perfectionism does. And I still struggle with that. But God has given me a lot of victory over it. He's put me in situations that has forced me to live in less than perfect, perfect conditions. And I've become a lot better at that. Another way this works is I'll, I'll share this story. And I'm going to try to share this story in a way that, that nobody here in this church would know this person. But some people listening might know this person. I knew a woman once. She's going to be with the Lord now. One of the most godly, loving women I ever met. And I remember one day sitting at her table over a cup of coffee, and she started telling me the story about when her husband was 35, and he'd gone away to seminary, and he was going to seminary in the day, and he was driving 70 miles at night and working in a factory at night. And they had older children, and, and, and one of their, their older children, their daughter, got involved with an older man. And she didn't tell her husband. She kept it from him. And she knew that her husband would not want his daughter dating this older man. But to make a long story short, she ended up getting pregnant. And back in those days, you know, that was a long time ago, that was a really bad thing. And he ended up having to drop out of school and move away. He later on went back into the ministry. But it really affected, I think, his effectiveness over the years in the ministry. And while she's telling me this story, she's telling me, I don't know why I did that. I don't know whatever possessed me not to tell him about that. Well, I knew why. Because I knew her story as a little girl. Her mother died when she was about seven years old, suddenly. And then her dad remarried a woman that was very, very abusive. Very abusive. Verbally, physically. 
I know the story that one time when this lady was 14 years old, the stepmother walked by with a pot of coffee and poured the whole pot of coffee down her back. And so this lady had developed this concept of, I've got to keep the peace. There's a difference between a, a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. A peacemaker is someone who looks at situations and says, we've got to deal with this. We've got to work our way through this. A peacekeeper says, I've got to make sure nothing happens that upsets anybody. If I have to hide it, if I have to ignore it, I just hope it goes away. When she shared that story with me, she was 80-something years old. All her life, she, she had struggled about trying to avoid conflict. Because that had been ingrained in her when she was a child. Let's look at the passage. So how can we overcome strongholds in our life? Notice this. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. Why? Because every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, when you first read that, you say, how does that fit in this passage? It fits in the passage because we are being deceived. And these lies that we believe, these are lies about God primarily. That God is not a good God. And God cannot be trusted. And God cannot help you. There's a lot of people struggling with that. But the Word of God tells us not to be deceived because what does it say about our God? It says we need a proper understanding of His person and His character. Our Heavenly Father only gives good gifts to His children. The word good means intrinsically good or good in nature. Our God is a good God. The problem with that is, though, how do we reconcile that with the world in which we live? Bad things that happen. That goes all the way back to the oldest book in the Bible. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. And Job struggled with that. The book of Psalms has two great themes throughout the book of Psalms. Psalms of praise. That God is good and our God is great. And then Psalms of lament. Life is very difficult and very tough. You're not getting out of it alive, incidentally. You know, today in today's culture, this is called theodicy. And theodicy goes like this. If your God is all-powerful and your God is all-loving, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Now, I'll be just really open with you. I was almost going to preach on that. It's one of my favorite subjects to preach on. And I was torn all week until just at the last moment when I decided to go with this one, which is one God had put on my heart quite a while ago. And I'll talk about that someday. I'll answer that question of theodicy. But I want you to know that our God is a good God. Not only is he a good God, he is the Father of lights. He is the Father of lights. There is no darkness in our God. He is perfect light. He is holy and without fault. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from the beginning and announce it to you that our God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Our God gives wisdom, understanding, and eternal perspective when we allow Him to illuminate our minds. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded their minds from believing so that they might be, not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Throughout the scriptures, there's this theme of light and darkness. Light and darkness. And I'll tell you, God is our light. He is perfect. He is holy. He is good and He is perfect and holy. There's nothing in Him that's unjust. And not only that, our God does not change. There is, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The fact that God is light and the light illuminates out from God, there's never a shadow on God. There's never a blemish. God doesn't change. God does not change. No matter what you're going through. A lot of times when these pressures come into our lives, these trials, the temptation starts drawing us away to go to something else other than God, to fulfill that need, to meet that need, whatever it might be. God is the one that meets that need. Because He is good. He gives good gifts. And God is light. And God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, it says, And the city has no need for sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. When we get to heaven, the only light we'll have there is the light emanating from God Himself. I'm telling you that God can be trusted, and He's our source of help. And number three, third point in this, how do we overcome these strongholds? In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. What is this verse saying, and how does it fit in? How do we combat these lies? Well, first of all, when he says he's brought us forth, it's that word again of being born. He birthed He birthed us into new life through the word of God. We came into a relationship with God, a spiritual relationship, through the power of God's word and the power of his spirit. And his word has a purifying effect in our life. We need to know the purifying power of God's word in our life. Charles Spurgeon once said this, We should look at the world through chapter and verse eyes. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying for His disciples and for us. And He said, Father, sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. Romans chapter 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the lies of this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. When we bring the truth of God's Word into our lives, it transforms the way we think. And then another verse, another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, that means we live in these earthly bodies, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For our weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We need the word of God in our lives daily. We need the truth of God's word to see God for who he is. To see us for ourselves as God sees us. And to see others the way God sees them. Application time. First of all, realize that every believer has areas in their life in which they struggle. There's none of us that don't have some areas where we struggle in our lives. So this is something that it, it, it's, it's common. And sometimes, though, these sins become very strong in our lives. They're besetting sins. They're beguiling sins. They're habitual sins. They're strongholds. And we need to break those. Remember that God sometimes immediately delivers a believer from a stronghold. This happens sometimes. But I found it's not the rule. I'm going to tell you why. Talk about my father-in-law. My father-in-law was a very godly man. He, he, he got saved when he was young, but he started smoking. And when he was called to the ministry, this is way back in the day, he said one time I was in the hospital visiting people as a pastor. And I was blowing cigarette smoke in their faces. Now, I know some of you are just totally shocked that you could smoke cigarettes in the hospital. But the doctors used to even smoke, and the nurses in the hospital. And so he's visiting people and telling them about Jesus and blowing cigarette smoke in their face. He said, I walked out of the hospital, and the, and the Lord said, you don't need that in your life anymore. He said, I threw that pack down, stepped on it, picked it up, threw it in a garbage can. He said, I never smoked another cigarette in my life. God sometimes does that. But then I know, I've known other believers that have struggled smoking a cigarette their whole life. Godly people that would sneak out and get them one when nobody was looking. And they wanted to quit, but they found it harder to quit. I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to strongholds, you need to commit yourself to the process of becoming more like Christ. And remember this, that God is glorified in the struggle. God is glorified in the struggle, folks. The Bible says we've not yet resisted under blood striving against sin. But when we attempt to walk and live like Christ, and we fall, but we get up on our knees before God and we confess our sin and we get back up and tend to start to walk with God again, God is glorified. And I'm telling you something in the process. The more you do that, the more you deal with it, and the more you bring it to God, and the more you bring it into captive to the obedience of truth of Christ and God's truth, the less power that thing will have in your life. And eventually, something that you've struggled with for years, it no longer has a hold on you. You've broken free of it. And you've been conformed to the image of Christ. That happens. That's the way it happens. And God is glorified in that. When you start to feel that temptation come on, first of all, let me say this. You need to ask God to reveal to you the lies that you believe that are causing you to react. And I'll tell you, this is how it happens. When you feel a compulsion to do this habitual sin that you're falling into, first thing you need to do is pray and ask God, show me the lies. Show me the lies I'm believing about you or about myself. Reveal it to me. Go to the Lord and just pray. And I promise you, he'll show you the lies that you believe. 
And when you believe those lies, you say, all right, God, this is what I, I think in my heart. But this is what I know. I've struggled with that. Perfectionist, remember? Had a bad day at work. Made some big mistakes. I'm driving home. God doesn't love you. You're worthless. You're useless. You messed up this and you messed up that. You call yourself a Christian? How could God love you? You should just quit. That's, that's the voices in my head saying you're not perfect. But what does God say? You're complete in Christ. You're lacking nothing. You're my son that I've adopted in my family. You can call me Abba Father. And I've forgiven all your sins. You're a saint of God, Dustin. See, we bring ourselves in to that relationship with God. And we can overcome it. I'm telling you, there's hope. There's hope. Now, I will tell you this. When you get victory over that sin in your life, I know this for a fact. Then God moves on to the next thing. There's something else. And usually, it's something about your attitude. And he's going he's to put you in the trial to reveal that to you. You know, you can, think, you can think, well, I'm walking pretty good with God. But there's certain things you haven't faced. You, have you been falsely accused? Have you been physically, has your character been attacked by someone? Those are things that are hard to deal with. And they can be very unsettling. And God starts dealing with you on different things. There's things in your life. Because what is God doing? He's conforming you to the image of Jesus. But remember this. We don't get to perfection. Sorry, I wish I could. I wish I could be perfect. We don't get to perfection until we get our new glorified bodies. And then we'll be fully like unto Him. Let's pray this morning. Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. And I pray that your word was an encouragement to those that were listening. Those that are struggling. Struggling with sins in their life. Struggling with things that are driving them to behaviors. It could be workaholism. It could be pornography. It could be drugs. It could be overeating. It could be angry outbursts. It could be saying hurtful things to others. It could be perfectionism. There's so many things that we fall prey to that become strongholds in our lives. And I pray this morning that they will take this truth to realize that you are for them. And that they can come to you when these desires well up in them. They can come to you, Father. And they can go to other believers, too. And ask other believers, you be my accountability partner. You ask me, you hold me accountable, and you help me overcome this in my life. And I promise them, if they will keep getting up and keep walking with you, Father, that one day you will give them the victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.